You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the show. Ewan, I love a special occasion. Yes, a very special occasion. So what do we always do when we've got a special occasion involving the B word? Well, we we send Lizzie out into the cold. Hi, Lizzie. How are you doing? Hi, Stephen. I've got a hot water bottle between my legs. It is that cold. <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk about what we're, we, we've sent you out to, to report on today. Um, It looks like a deal, I know we've been saying this for a while, a Brexit deal between the EU and the UK is imminent on changes to the trading rules around Northern Ireland. What do we know at this stage or what do we not know? Yeah, they've been ramping up expectations for the past two weeks, but... Every time it seemed that the Tory Brexiters and the Democratic Unionist Party were scuppering the plans. But today we've got the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on British soil. So frankly, at this point, it would be weird if we didn't get a deal today. She's going to be speaking to the Prime Minister in Berkshire, in Windsor later on today. We're expecting a deal to focus on trade, on Northern Ireland's place in the UK, on this so-called democratic deficit. But we haven't seen the deal, nor have Tory MPs, which is much to their frustration. We're expecting something like a 100-page document. We still don't know how much of a role the European Court of Justice will have or how much of a say the Northern Ireland Assembly will have over EU rules that govern it. But these are the sorts of things that determine whether the DUP and Tory Brexiters rebel against a deal. We're not expecting a vote today, but you could see resignations. There's a resignation watch on Steve Baker, the uh, Northern Ireland minister, and perhaps there'll be others if the former prime ministers Boris Johnson and Liz Truss kick up a stink about it. Lizzie, I think we should have mentioned before that you're standing, uh, you're in Westminster, aren't you? We haven't just sent you outside the office uh, to, to, stand, to stand in the cold. <laughs> you're, not, you're not just standing kind of anywhere in London in the cold, which could also be a fun game that we could play another day. Um, what, what's, what's your sense of, of, of how many Tories will come out and actively uh, oppose this deal? 
Well, this is looking to be a three-line whip, so it'll essentially be treated like a referendum on Rishi Sunak. Uh, but if you look at the, uh, if you think that the Brexiters will follow the DUP, you've got hardliners in the DUP who are saying we're not going to sign up to anything unless, well, if parts of the Northern Ireland protocol are maintained. But the, the DUP is a broad church, and so you could have more support from the Brexiters than you might think. I do think that it's very important that they see the text. Uh, so it's difficult to put numbers on it at this precise moment. Yeah, I mean, there, as you say, so much detail still left to be learned about exactly what's in this. You've um, laid out some of the things that we we do know. What are the hopes that the DUP will accept this and that it will ultimately lead to a restoration of the power sharing government in Northern Ireland? So one of the big points is on the democratic deficit and they want to see a scaled back role of the European Court of Justice. But Stephen, you and I talk about this a lot. Ultimately, the ECJ is going to have to be kept as the arbiter of disputes about EU law. The Brussels wouldn't have it any other way. So it's about where on the scale between the two this deal lands. And Sunak's allies are suggesting that he's done better than any of his predecessors in terms of negotiating that. They're also going to want the Northern Ireland Assembly to have a bigger say on the EU rules that affect it. Uh, at the moment, there it's absolutely anathema to them that there's this border in the Irish Sea, uh, effectively, uh, and that they're not getting a say on rules that affect them. The third point is about trade. Uh, and Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, was out to bat for the government over the weekend. He was saying that uh, there'll be more of an intelligence-based approach to goods checks and a move away from individual checks at Northern Ireland ports. So practically what that would look like is having a green and a red customs lane. And in the green lane, you've got goods flowing from GB to Northern Ireland and in the red lane you've got goods that would be flowing onwards to the EU respectively. So you can see where the fudges could be that the Prime Minister could make to get through this. Yeah I mean and the really key point that's allowed them to make this progress is sharing data on exactly what goods are travelling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and where they're going, going afterwards which had been the key stumbling block that was unlocked a couple of months ago now in fact when the EU got access to the UK's customs database to be able to look at that. Lizzie I just want to bring you the latest uh, information as well from the Prime Minister's spokesman who's been speaking to reporters saying that uh, UK and EU leaders are aiming for final talks on the Brexit deal. There is a plan for parliamentary process to come if a deal is struck and crucial confirmation that Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission President, will meet King Charles III later uh, today. Mm, Yeah, that's another sign that we are getting closer to to a deal. Lizzie, I want to ask you about Rishi Sunak's negotiating strategy to to do all this in secret behind closed doors, because there has been some criticism, hasn't there, um, that this is a a bad way to proceed. Uh, Anand Menon, Director of UK and a Changing Europe, tweeting that uh, Theresa May's team showed that to sit in the the room with the EU and to uh, win concessions on important stuff and then to emerge blinking into the sunlight uh, to then find the whole thing shot down by your colleagues, uh, not not a good strategy. But there, there is a debate on this, isn't there? Well, I won't say it too loudly because I'm actually in the building where his former office is. But the former director of Onward, Will Tanner, uh, is now advising Rishi Sunak at number 10. And he, of course, also worked for Theresa May. So you can perhaps see where some of the uh, ideas could be shared. Um, But also you can understand why Rishi Sunak's approaching it in this way. Um, He isn't putting all his cards on the table 
upfront. He wanted to make sure that his deal was agreeable to the Brexiters in his party, to the DUP, before he printed off a copy and showed everybody, because he doesn't want to face the humiliation in the Commons of having to rely on the votes of Labour that Keir Starmer has said he can have, because then he'd be in the checkmate position where he looks weak, as Keir Starmer has been accusing him of week after week at Prime Minister's Questions. Yeah, of course, that would be the, the the very worst thing for the Prime Minister. We'll get plenty more with Lizzie standing uh, at Westminster in the uh, cold. But back to you uh, shortly. Thanks, Lizzie. Let's get a perspective from Northern Ireland now. We've been speaking to Red Gempi, who's the Ulster Unionist Party peer, who was one of the negotiators of the Good Friday Agreement. We started by asking him what he knows about what's in this new deal. Not a lot. Um, and that's one of the criticisms that uh, we have. And that's a criticism we've had now for quite some time. Um, I don't think it's a good concept to negotiate a very significant agreement that affects one small part of the UK behind the backs of the politicians who represent the people here. I, I, I mean, we wouldn't have got the Belfast Good Friday Agreement negotiated had it been done that way. And... Um, Prior to that, in the mid-1980s, you had the Anglo-Irish Agreement, and that was negotiated without the involvement of local politicians. And we all saw what happened to that. It didn't work. So I think, as a matter of principle, it it should be widened out to discuss uh, the details with the people who ultimately will have to live with it and implement large parts of it. So I don't think it's a very good idea to do that. So we were told in very broad terms what the Prime Minister is trying to do. Um, It's not his specific mess that we're clearing up, I suppose, but um, at the end of the day, um, he, I think, is is, sincere in what he's trying to do. Uh, But I think, basically, the problem was that Brexit was so terribly badly negotiated by the United Kingdom government, probably the worst international negotiation they've done, certainly in my lifetime, and um, it, it's a very di- difficult problem to fix uh, because of the fact that it was so badly negotiated. But uh, we are where we are and uh, we have to play the cards that were dealt. In, in terms of the substance, what would you like to see in, in the deal? What, what are you hoping to hear? Well, look, um, the reality is that the United Kingdom as a whole uh, passed the with, with, withdrawal agreements and the, the TCA. And the protocol is part of that process. So it's an international agreement. And it's very difficult uh, in a situation where Europe is at war, where we are saying that the Russians are breaking every international norm, it's very difficult for a UK Prime Minister to stand up in front of an audience like that and say, well, I'm, I'm casting aside this agreement because it doesn't suit us. And the other irony I would draw to your attention is that the on the Prime Minister's backbenches and the ERG group, which the our Democratic Unionist Party here uh, are uh, associated with, all of them, all of the ERG group voted for Boris Johnson's legislated for the protocol they voted for the agreement which contained the protocol every single one of them 
And now they're saying, well, we can't have this and we can't have that and we can't have the other. So I, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy involved in all of this. But the truth is, we are in a very difficult position because we are half in the EU single market and half out of it. I'm on a House of Lords subcommittee on the protocol. And you can already see divergence beginning to emerge between the market in Northern Ireland and the, and the market in Great Britain. And this will expand over time. And that is one of the key areas that I think we have to deal with to ensure that we are a, a real part of the UK internal market. Of course, one of the obstacles that we're all focused on is is whether or not the Democratic Unionist Party will agree to this because they are the ones who are currently not allowing the power-sharing government to be formed in Northern Ireland. Do you think that the DUP can be satisfied with a deal like this? Are you hopeful of a restoration of power-sharing? Well, we are not uh, have been opposed to the DUP's tactics on this um, in the first place. I, I don't see what the merit is in bringing down devolution and proving to the Republicans have always said that Northern Ireland is a failed political entity. So it's kind of an irony that any unionists would be uh, actively participating in proving that. And that's my fear as to how their actions are being interpreted up to now. They will argue that we're doing this because we're trying to force the UK government to change its policy. And we're trying to force the EU by telling them that we can't live with the proposals on the table, even though the DUP backed Boris Johnson's original proposal on the 2nd of October 2019, when he proposed the border in the RSC. And that's another irony and something that's very rarely taken up. Um, but they backed Boris up until the 17th of October when they realised that he'd run them over. Um, so I, I think that not having uh, Stormont and punishing the local elect- electorate here is is a strategic mistake. What's your message to the uh, DUP? Well, look, uh, I think that they've got this wrong from the very start. Uh, They were avid uh, um, Brexiteers, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But they hadn't done their homework. There was no plan in place, no idea as to how you were to um, deal with the situation on the island of Ireland. And they still haven't got a plan that I'm aware of. So I think that basically you can tweak things, and I've no doubt that the agreement today will do that. There will be mitigations the operation of the protocol will be less invasive. So I think that unless there is a dramatic change, uh, something that I'm not anticipating, but unless there's a dramatic change, I think the DUP have painted themselves into a corner. Does this change to the deal, whatever whatever is being agreed at the moment, does this have a big potential to help Northern Ireland's economy? You're a former economy minister. Well, it, and, and what a business needs is it needs certainty. It needs to know what market it's in. And we're in the position at the moment that we're half in and half out of the European Union. And while government has promised us um, unfettered access to the uh, Great Britain market, which is where the vast majority of our trade and business is done, investors are going to be looking at the situation and they're going to be saying to themselves well 
what's going to happen here? Are these people going to be in? Are they going to be out? Is government going to function? Is it not going to function? And this creates um, a hostile environment for investment. And common sense will tell you that. I, I, I hardly need to tell Bloomberg that. Uh, you, you know perfectly well that that's the position. When the world now, investors have a huge choice um, uh, at their disposal. So it seems to me that there are potential economic advantages that Northern Ireland could, uh, could avail of. But what it, we are left in the ridiculous position that we would have laws made in Brussels, which we would have to implement, but we have no say over them, and neither does Westminster. So I'll be looking at the, any deal emerging today to see if that particular equation changes. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. That was Lord Reg MP of the Ulster Unionist Party speaking to us a little earlier. Yeah, really interesting to get Reg MP's uh, take. Of course, the Ulster Unionist, one of the parties which uh, opposed Brexit. So an element of, uh, of I told you so from, from Lord MP. Well, let's move away from Northern Ireland. Uh, today, Labour is fleshing out one of the five key missions that it set out last week. Keir Starmer says that the Tories have put the country on a, quote, path of decline. The party wants the UK to achieve the fastest sustainable growth in the G7. But what does that mean and how will Labour attempt to achieve it? This is something that Lizzie Burden was talking to the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves about earlier, along with Bloomberg's Anna Edwards. No, we haven't seen the changes that the government are hoping to make, but it does, of course, look like that a, a deal is there and the EU and the UK government uh, have agreed changes. Those changes are a- absolutely essential because it is clear that the Northern Ireland Protocol is not delivering for the people of Northern Ireland, but also it's not delivering for businesses who are trying to do trade uh, right across the United Kingdom. And so Mm. we hope that the deal improves upon the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we've been very clear, Labour are the party of the Good Friday Agreement secured 25 years ago. We'll do nothing to put that in jeopardy. We're not going to play party politics with this. We will support the government um, if and when they bring back a deal. Okay, and according to various UK newspaper reports, this deal could include changes to the withdrawal agreements, safeguards on the role of the ECJ, many fewer checks on goods flowing into Northern Ireland from, from, uh, from GB, things that were deemed to be pretty hard to get. If that is the case, will you congratulate the Prime Minister on achieving those things? 
Well, the government are just sorting out the mess that they created. You'll remember that in 2019, the former Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, said he had an oven-ready deal. He had nothing of the sort. The current Prime Minister was Chancellor when that deal was uh, secured, and it wasn't a deal that was good enough. And we've spent the last couple of years, the government have spent the last couple of years, uh, trying to get out of a deal that they themselves signed. So, look, we welcome the fact that um, it looks like um, a, a deal to improve upon the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, will be done and has been uh, done. Um, but, you know, the reason we're in this mess in the first place is that the deal secured by the Conservatives um, um, a couple of years ago wasn't good enough. Shadow Chancellor, you're an economist, a Bank of England economist by background. Two economists have told me that securing a deal on Northern Ireland would help to reduce uncertainty, boost investment and boost growth. Do you agree with that assessment and how much could it boost them? Well, look, we haven't seen the details of the deal, but the aim of um, a new deal would be to improve trade uh, through the United Kingdom without resurrecting borders on the island of Ireland, which would be uh, so uh, terrible for the progress that has been made on uh, peace. Uh, so, look, I do think that this will be beneficial to the economy of the United Kingdom. And of course, today, Labour is publishing its own ambitions, um, our mission to secure the highest sustained growth for the UK in the G7 with good jobs and productivity growth in all parts of the United Kingdom uh, and growth that is felt by everyone, not just a few. So uh, mm. we are setting out our stall today on how we can uh, make Britain a great place to do business uh, and, uh, and, and growth in a way that is felt okay. by ordinary families and pensioners up and down the country. And on that subject, Shadow Chancellor, I, I understand that Keir Starmer will say today to a business audience that the party needs to find a way to take on vested interests and that you believe there is a role for government in shaping some elements of, how mar of, of markets. How do you expect that message to be received by this business audience? It's what businesses are saying to the Labour Party all the time, that we need a partnership approach between government and business to seize some of the opportunities that are out there in the economy today. You know, our a mission that we're setting out on the economy is incredibly bold and incredibly ambitious to achieve the highest sustained growth in the G7. But we are bold and ambitious because we are bold and ambitious for our country. And we know we could do so much better than how we've been doing these last few years. And other countries are seizing the opportunities out there. Look at the US and the Inflation Reduction Act to get investment in the green industries of the future in their country. Look at the response of the European Union with the Net Zero Industry Act or what President Albanese is doing in Australia. Britain is still in the changing rooms whilst other other countries are in the race and we need to make sure that we get our share of that investment in the UK and that involves a role for government in partnering with business, uh, reducing some of the barriers, whether that be in planning or the apprenticeship levy, which we know are not working for business today and a discourage investment in both people and in capital here in Britain. But Shadow Chancellor, many of the measures that you would need to do to meaningfully boost growth are expensive or controversial. Childcare, for example. Realistically, given the state of the economy you'd inherit if you were to get into power, what could you afford to do? 
Well, of course, any plan for economic growth has got to be built on a rock of economic and fiscal responsibility. We saw what happens uh, when you throw those, um, those, those tenets of economic policy to the side. That's what happened when Liz Truss was prime minister and Kwasi Kwarteng was chancellor. And so that's why we've said that all of our plans will be fully costed and fully uh, funded and that we have set ourselves a set of tough fiscal rules. But we then need a plan for economic growth. And we've started to set out some of that and we'll do more today. Labour's Green Prosperity Plan to seize um, um, uh, potential in industries from green steel to green hydrogen, carbon capture and storage to batteries for electric vehicles. Our plans to make Britain the best place to start and grow a business with the reforms that Jim O'Neill has set out for the Labour Party. Our reforms to business rates to help small businesses and high streets to thrive. Those are just some of the practical things that an incoming Labour government will do to boost growth right across the UK in a way that will be felt by families and businesses up and down the country. So that was the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, speaking to Bloomberg earlier. Lizzie Burden's with us. Lizzie, what did you make of that interview? And, and are we any clearer now this speech has happened on, on Labour's plans for, for government? Well, let's talk about Brexit first, because I thought it was really interesting to hear Rachel Reeves saying that a deal would benefit the economy. I've spoken to Karen Ward, who's an economic advisor to the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, and also Callum Pickering at Berenberg. And both of them had said that reducing uh, uncertainty would help to unlock investment in business and growth as well. So really interesting to hear her making the economic argument, even though she's not seen the deal. Um, and secondly, on growth more broadly, which of course is what Labour wanted to focus on today. Um, it's not controversial that this is one of their ambitions. The CBI wants growth. Even Liz Truss wants growth, especially Liz Truss wants growth. Um, but the question is how radical Labour will be to achieve it this prize that Britain's missed out on for the best for, for about a decade. Because as I said to her there, childcare is expensive, planning's controversial. She mentioned planning herself. She did say that the plans are fully costed. Economists I speak to are sceptical uh, that windfall taxes and closing non-DOM loopholes will be able to foot the bill. So it'd be interesting to see more detail of this as we head towards an election. But you know, Labour's got this big poll lead. There's a poll for the eye uh, over the weekend I think it put them at a 17 point lead and right now it does look like a star trying to carry the Ming vase across the polished floor as Roy Jenkins said of Tony Blair in 1997 it's Starmer's vase to drop oh I mean the vase has dropped the line has <laughs> dropped the metaphors are jumping from one to the other that was Lizzie Burton who was with Dropping us from, from like Westminster a Ming vase. exactly I want to know what's happened to the vase now I, I, Lizzie, are you still there? Lizzie, uh, yeah, I, I think we've, we've. Ah, Lizzie, you are still there. I, I want to ask you. It's, surely, the, the truth I was done is. with my, my metaphor, you were. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lovely metaphor. That was a, that was a mic drop that we heard <laughs> from Lizzie Burden. Surely the, the, surely the truth is, Lizzie, for the next Labour government is not going to have much wiggle room. There is not going to be much money to spend in in helping to achieve growth or, or otherwise. I'm so sorry, you'll have to say that again for me, Ewan. Lizzie, the next Labour government will have little scope, will it? It's going to be a tricky time to be entering government if they do win the election. 
Well, exactly. But there is some hope in the sense that more and more economists are coming out and saying that the recession that the UK is predicted to have might not be as bad as they had thought. And actually, our economists at Bloomberg Economics reckon it's touch and go, quote unquote, uh, whether we'll have a recession at all. So that will mean more tax revenue, which will hopefully give them, if they get into power, more revenue. But this is not the sort of economic situation where you have oodles and oodles to spend. So it is going to come down to difficult choices. And do they put all their eggs into a basket like childcare? We've yet to Mm. see. Okay, Lizzie Burden, thank you very much. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe, give it five stars, so people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, this episode was produced by James Walcock and Marifal Hussain was on sound. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Lizzie Burden was our host in Westminster. Special thanks to her producer, Louise Moon. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.